Thank you, Shirley and the team. It's just great to be able to worship together. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of Psalms and uh, just bookmark Psalm 2. We're going to get into that together just now. But really excited today because we start a new series in the Psalms. It's just a four-week series, and it's called Jesus in the Psalms. And what we're going to be doing is taking a look over the next four weeks at a very specific group of psalms called the royals, or the royal psalms. And, and the reason why they're referred to as the royal psalms is because they bring and contain direct and indirect prophecy about King Jesus, about God's anointed Messiah. And so these psalms contain indirect prophecy, as in the psalmist is writing about himself, and in so doing is still also writing about something that on a deeper level is true about Messiah. And then they also contain direct prophetic words, as in the psalmist is writing, but no longer writing about himself and circumstances they're experiencing, but actually direct prophecy about King Jesus. And Psalm 2 is one of those psalms. It's one of those psalms that we need. I need Psalm 2. You need Psalm 2. It's one of those psalms that really needs to resonate with our souls And we need to allow it to bring us courage and hope and strength. Because I don't know about you, but as I've walked with the Lord, I've realized that to do what God has called us to do, we require more than just ourselves. We require Him, we require His strength, we require His empowering. And the things that God has called us to are always bigger than ourselves. God calls us to God things. And so we need God to empower us for that. If God has called you to something that you feel you can do in your own strength, I question whether you've heard him properly or whether you understand the scale and the significance of the thing that he's called you to. So Psalm 2 is, is one of those psalms that helps us to understand the sovereignty and the authority and the greatness of our God. And amidst all the turmoil and tension in this world, it's a psalm that should really bring us courage and hope and peace and should strengthen us in our faith as we read about the rule and the reign of King Jesus. No matter what's going on in this world around us, within our hearts and about our lives, this psalm teaches us this one thing. King Jesus reigns. And God is sovereign. So on one hand, David's writing about himself, but on the other, he's prophesying about Messiah. So let's read together. And it breaks up nicely into four different parts. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. Let's read. David writes, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. Ask me. And I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he'll be angry. And your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So the first couple of verses, first, verse 1 to 3, speak about the rebellion of the kings of the world and of the rulers of the earth. It really speaks about the rebellion of man 
and how futile it is to try and break away from God's rule in your life. The schemes and the, the plans of the rulers of this world are, are against the Lord. But as, but as David's writing, he's writing about himself saying, I am the Lord's king who's been installed on the throne of Israel. And there are nations that I've been given to rule that are subservient to the nation of Israel and are under my kingship and they're trying to break away. So on one hand, David is writing about himself. But on the other hand, and on a more deeper and more profound level, David is actually writing about what people in general do with God's anointed Messiah, King Jesus. Where they band together to try and break away from his rule and his reign as if that's going to be possible. And how they gather together to try and conspire against the Lord as if they can throw him off of his game and make sure that his plans don't come to fruition. So David's writing about what he's experiencing because he's writing the psalm as he's experiencing what's happening to him. But as he's led and inspired by the Holy Spirit, so he's writing prophetically about the heart and the nature of people throughout generations as they come into contact with God and they realize He's sovereign. Their desire is to always try and break away because the mantra of this world is, I want to be my own God. And so ultimately, this prophecy is fulfilled in God's anointed. And the, the root word, the, root, the Hebrew root word for anointed actually means Messiah. And so God's anointed is God's Messiah. And in many ways, it is speaking about David because David was a savior, a political savior to Israel in one sense. But on one hand, he's not the savior, the anointed, the Messiah. David is what we refer to as a type of Christ. He represents something that Jesus would do, but Jesus obviously does it on a greater, more profound level. So David writing about himself, he says, why do the nations conspire? Why do they band together against the Lord? But ultimately, he's writing about what people are doing and would be doing with Jesus. And we see that in our world today. Because there are political leaders, and we'll see that this doesn't just refer to political leaders and people of power. It refers to us actually, but we see that at the end of the psalm. But, but, but there are rulers of nations around this world who despise the Lord, who despise His Word, and will root it out of our schools, will root it out of any teaching syllabus, will try and make sure that God's people do not prosper and do not have a hope of fulfilling the great commission, the commandment that God has given to us. And they would see God be called a fool when Jesus says to us, my church will grow and the gates of hell will not prevail. He'll do anything to try and make sure that doesn't happen. But God has got other plans. We see it all the time. And so when you read the opening verses, you can also tell that, that David is quite honestly perplexed and amused and in some ways really frustrated and confused by people's desire to break away from God. And they're thinking that it's actually possible. Why? David writes, he's, he's mystified. Why do the people even try to plot and plan and rebel against God? One question is, of what benefit is it going to be to you? And the other question is, if and if you could do it, where are you going to end up? They say, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles in verse 3. This is a language that speaks of wanting to be free from constraint. Let's break the shackles and throw off the chains. It's, it's, it's a desire to be free from the belief in God because believing in God comes with having to obey His moral requirements and accept His Lordship. And so really, if people were honest, this is the real reason 
rulers of this world want to break away from the lordship and the kingship of Jesus and God's ultimate rule and reign over their lives because they want to be their own gods and they want to be free from God's moral standards. And if I'm honest about my own life, before I came to know Jesus, the reason why I rejected giving my life to Jesus was because I thought I was going to have to give up all the cool stuff that I decided was good for me. And so most people who don't know Jesus, when they come to hear about Him, it's not a salvation issue, it's a lordship issue. Most people want to go to heaven and everyone believes that they are. But it's only those that are submitted to the lordship of Jesus and have accepted Him as King and Lord and Savior that will inherit that blessing. So if the world is honest, they want to break away from God, not because He is in any way wicked or evil or uncomfortable to be around, but they want to be their own gods. The irony of this is in trying to free ourselves from God, we actually end up in deeper bondage. The irony is the further away you get from God, the deeper into darkness you plunge. And so in trying to throw off shackles and in trying to break free from the bonds of God, so you place more and more and more upon yourself. David is so perplexed because he realizes that it's only in God and we know that in Jesus and Jesus alone is true freedom found. So we learn some stuff about ourselves. We learn some stuff about our world and the nature of humanity and our heart to try and break away from God. But in His grace, He calls us to Him and He draws us ever closer. The scary thing is, though, if we continue to resist God, God's Word is very clear about what happens to us. God eventually at some point gives us over to our desires, which leads to a depraved mind. And Romans, Paul writes about this. He speaks about the very obvious thing that happens when we choose to reject God. Here's what he says in Romans chapter 1, 28 to 31. Since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. Tell me if as we read this, it like, speaks of the world we live in. Of all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. I think we live in a world people actually do. They sit down and they, they, they decide to do stuff that doesn't exist. And they invent ways of doing evil. Brad spoke about it. There's this couple that started a company. I forget what it's called. But it helps you to have affairs. So they will set up an affair for you and they will make sure that it's hidden. No one ever finds out. People invent ways of doing evil. They're foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know... God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They do not only do them, but give, a, give approval to those who practice them. This is what happens when the world rejects God. This is what happens when God hands us over to the desires of our hearts to become our own gods. We end up becoming our own gods, but gods of destruction. And we end up placing bonds upon ourselves. And so David is perplexed at why people would want to band together against the Lord. And isn't it interesting, if you read this, it almost seems like there's a group of them getting together. And the world can sometimes think that way. The more people I can get to agree with me, the more true it is. Or the more people I can get to be on my side, the more what we've decided to do then becomes right. And for God who sits in heaven, it doesn't matter how many of them get together to bandy against Him. God's will is done. 
which is where we move next. David's like, it's futile what you're doing. Look at the Lord's response. This is, this is how God responds to what's going on in the world. This is, what, this is what God does when things seem to be getting out of hand. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. Some translations will say the one enthroned in heaven or the one who sits in heaven laughs. Church, when God looks at what's going on around the world, it doesn't please him. But he's not flustered or taken aback or in any way shocked or surprised or feels like he's getting out of control. God doesn't even get up off of his throne. He sits. God sits and he laughs. And his laughing is not because he enjoys or gets a kick out of man's sinfulness or that he like revels in the destruction that they're experiencing. It's very clear from Ezekiel chapter 33 where God says, I do not take pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die? It's very clear that God loves people, but he's laughing comes from his understanding of their utter foolishness in thinking that they can actually get away from him and that they can thwart his plans. And so God sits in heaven enthroned, knowing the beginning from the end before the foundations of the earth were laid, so he's determined the end. And he has peace because he is sovereign. So often I find God's people in turmoil with a lack of peace struggling with the reality of this world and life, not remembering and realizing and pressing into the truth that God is sovereign and as his sons and daughters, he's in control. There is a deep peace that comes from knowing God is in control. He is seated on the throne in heaven. Nothing is going to displace him. In the book of Revelation, it won't come up now, but John is writing and he's speaking about this vision of heaven that he sees and he sees the throne room. And it says he sees what looks like a sea of glass before the throne. And commentators have debated what this means and try to unpack the imagery, and I think it'd get lost on us, and I don't know that we would fully understand it. But I like one commentator who suggested that he thinks that that means that before the throne of God there is absolute peace. There is not a ripple in that water or that substance or whatever it is before the throne. God sits in the foundations of the throne of heaven. Do not ever move, regardless of what's happening. The earth is his footstool. We serve a sovereign God who's holy and righteous and immovable. That's how God responds. He laughs at their foolishness. God has this calm assurance in the face of man's rebellion and I think as his people we need to have the same and be trusting in God for the same and asking God for the same and remembering that he's in control. King Nebuchadnezzar found out that God was greater than him If you read the book of Daniel, again, this won't come up. But Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest ruler on earth in his day. He was proud and he was arrogant and he was haughty and attributed his greatness as a ruler to his greatness as a man. But God humbled him with a strange disease and it caused him to crawl on his hands and feet like a beast in the field and eat grass. And Nebuchadnezzar experienced that until the point where he declares the most high God is the ruler over all the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. This will happen to the rulers and the kings and the political leaders of our day, but church, it will also happen to those who have refused to accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. 
And that's where this message gets a little bit difficult because as we learn about Jesus and ourselves, there's a tendency that we have to always make the bad stuff apply to other people. Whereas God is actually saying, it's you that I want to have considered the scripture and how it affects your life. Where are you today? How do you respond to Jesus? What do you desire to do with the truth that God is enthroned and he's given a savior to redeem you from your sin? How does it make you feel and how do you respond? In verse 6 we read, it says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. In some ways this is true about David. Jerusalem, God's holy hill, and was referred to as Zion, and David is enthroned there. And David's saying about himself, why are you trying to dethrone me? God's purposes and plans will prevail. Remember David's life? Saul was still king, and Saul dishonored God, and so God said to the prophet Nathan, go to the, go to the house of Jesse and go and look at his sons, and I'm going to anoint a king from the sons of Jesse. And so Samuel goes, and he looks at six of the sons who all look magnificent on the outside, and God says, it's neither of these. And so Nathan, quite perplexed, says, do you have another son, Jesse? And Jesse says, yeah, he's my youngest. David, he's a shepherd boy. He's out in the fields looking after the flocks. So Nathan says, call him. And as he arrives, God says to Nathan, this is the one that I've anointed as king. God anointed David as king way before he even sat on the throne of Israel. And Saul tried to undo it. People tried to undo it over and over and over again in their own scheming and planning because their own desires tried to get what they wanted. But God had established it from the beginning. And eventually Saul and his sons die in battle and David inherits the throne in a godly way. And so he's writing and he's saying, God has established this. What point is, what point is there in even trying to dethrone me? Until God says it be done, nothing you do will make it happen. And on a deeper, more profound level, David is writing about Messiah, our King Jesus. And he says, before the foundations of the earth were laid, so my King is enthroned in heaven. He's writing in the past tense. He says, I have put my King on this holy hill. It's already taken place. That's how certain the plans are of God. We watched the rugby yesterday. Got to watch the rugby with my family. We won. Praise God. Right? I don't know if you've ever watched a pre-recorded rugby match that someone has recorded for you and they've watched it but you haven't. I've been in that situation. Right? It's horrendous because you just don't want them to say anything. Right? And then I've been in situations where people have done that and they've told me they haven't watched it and then they want to take bets. Let's see who can get the closest to the score and then we give each other chocolates to whoever gets closest. And I lost horribly. Why? Because they had already watched it and lied to me about it. That has happened to me. So imagine being my friends, right, who've watched the rugby match, who know the score, and then you bring me in who hasn't ever watched it and get me to make predictions and make a judgment on the outcome not knowing anything. Who's in the strongest position there? See, the thing's already started and it's already ended. They have all the knowledge of how things are going to pan out, and I'm coming in. It has already started. It has already finished, but I'm watching it as if it is unfolding for the first time. And so it is with the Lord. What God has established, He's established from beginning to end. What God has decreed will happen, will happen, and we're watching it unfold as if it's happening for the first time. And we can get complicated and get all deep into our theology and say we haven't actually lived before, and that's true. But it's as good as done to God as he sees it and as he has created it. So the rulers of the earth try and undo what God has done. 
but he's won, he's won the competition a long time ago. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. And then David moves into this interesting space where he stops. It's, not, it's no longer an indirect prophecy about himself. He starts to actually directly prophesy about Jesus. This has no bearing on David's life now. In verse 7, it's this interesting space to move into. He says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. And now it's Jesus speaking about what the Father has said to him. Jesus says about the Father, He said to me, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. It's a very interesting passage of Scripture because a lot of people get hung up on the debate, what does it mean that you are my son, today I've become your father? It, it, it raises a few questions and it, it does, if you really want to get into it, throw you into some deep theological water where you can have some very interesting conversations. But, but the scope of this message is not to cover that. I'm going to touch on it a little bit now. But, but suffice to say that we will never fully understand the Trinity and how God relates to himself in the Trinity, and how that all, we'll never fully understand it. If we could, he, would never, he wouldn't be God. And so we can only go as far as the Scriptures allow us to go and no further. So what we do know from this is that it is not speaking about Jesus being created. Je Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, has always existed. God is three in one. Father, Spirit, Son who was, who is, and always will be. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, speaking about Jesus. But at some point in time, Jesus was begotten, as in the God-man. Right? Jesus became flesh. God became flesh. He left his throne room in heaven and became, at some point in time, that happened. This is not speaking about that time. The psalm, according to most Commentators is speaking about a point in time when Jesus finished all that God had appointed for him to do. And so the Father, in a sense, says to Jesus, it is now finished. Today you've become my son and I've become your father. It's not speaking about a change in relationship. It's speaking about a specific and significant time when Jesus accomplishes all that the Father has done for him. And evidence of that is in Acts chapter 13 where the new church, the early church, attributes the fulfillment of of this prophecy in Psalm 2 to Jesus and his resurrection. Here's what it says. We tell you the good news. Okay, what's the good news? That what God has promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I've become your father. In other words, when Jesus was resurrected, this, that was the fulfillment of this prophecy. So God says to Jesus on the day he's resurrected, today I've become your father, today you've become my son, because it says in Hebrews that on this day Jesus learned obedience. Not that he wasn't obedient, but he was fully obedient to the father, and all that he had portioned for him to do, he did perfectly. And the resurrection was the final nail in the enemy's coffin. Just about everything we believe as believers hangs on the resurrection. Everything. We can believe whatever we want, but if there was no resurrection, we believe foolishly. Paul says this about the early church. We of all men should be pitied if we believe what we believe and then at the same time the resurrection doesn't happen. Because the resurrection was what proved that Jesus was God and is God. If you want to make it very simple, you can just say, 
Psalm 2, verse 7, what it's speaking about is that in Jesus, through his conception, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, he fulfills the promises and the purposes of God. And then in verse 8, the anointed describes, Jesus describes more of what the Father said to him. Father says to him, ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. This was the promise that the Father made to Jesus, which is why Jesus can so easily brush off the enemy's temptation. Remember when Jesus was baptized, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and then the Spirit tempts Jesus, um, Satan tempts Jesus. And one of the temptations was Jesus is taken up onto the top of the temple roof in Jerusalem, and Satan says to him, look at all that you can see. I will give you all of this if you just bow down to me. And Jesus says no. One of the reasons why Jesus says no to him is because Satan was giving him something that wasn't his. The Father had already offered everything and more to Jesus. This is the promise that the Father gives to the Son. And then in verse 9, we read more of what the Father says. The Messiah will rule the nations with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces. I really love this description of Jesus and I like moving into this territory of Jesus where a lot of, I think, contemporary Christians don't or contemporary Christian teaching doesn't really go there because we like to teach about the gentleness and the meekness and the mildness of our Savior, but very seldom is that balanced with the ferocity of our King. But I love it because I enjoy just the warrior hearts of God and that spirit because as my Father, I can rest in that. As His enemy, I would be terrified. Our Father, our God, is a lion and a lamb. And so this speaking of his rule and his reign of dashing the nations to pieces, like pieces of pottery, speaks about his absolute and immense power to rule and to reign. And just how terrifying he actually is. In Revelation 19, one of my favorite scriptures, from verse 15 to 16, it says, And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That winepress analogy is very powerful and in many ways quite hectic. In the old days, they would take grapes and they would put grapes into a big winepress and then they would stomp on the grapes and they'd stomp on the grapes and they'd stomp on the grapes and they'd stomp on the grapes and then all the juice would pour out the bottom. What God is saying about the rule and reign of Jesus is that for his enemies, that's what will happen. He will take them like grapes and put them into a wine press and he will stamp on them and crush them. I love bringing balance to our perspective and our understanding of Jesus because I think our world has got lost in gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But God's word, you'll see just now in the verses that are going to come now. He says, serve him with fear, celebrate his rule and reign with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. Serve with fear. You can come into the presence of your Savior, but King Jesus is King Jesus. This is God's plan for dealing with rebellious man, with Satan and his forces. So how should we respond? How should we respond to this truth? Well, there's this warning and there's a call to respond. It says in verse 10 through to verse 12, Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. 
but blessed to all who take refuge in him. The psalmist warns us and he says, it would be wise for you to consider who this king really is. It would be wise for you to understand that he is a loving God who has made provision for you to be saved. But if you choose not to, if you choose not to walk with him, if you reject him, and you choose not to willingly submit, then there will come a time where you'll be forced to submit. Because every tongue will confess and every knee will bow before him. It's not just the proud kings of David's day who rebelled against the Lord. It's the political leaders and rulers of our day and age. And it's every single one of us who chooses to say no to Jesus. It's not just those who are in power. It's for us that are sitting here this morning and you've gone, I don't need him. I'm here because my family is here. I'm here because I want to tick the box. And I want to save face. This warning is for you. And that's not to say, I think often Christians get a bad rap. We get accused of being judgmental and holier than thou and self-righteous. And yes, we can be like that. But the difference between someone who knows Jesus and doesn't know Jesus is I'm honest about my mistakes and I go, I need Jesus to help me with it. But for those who don't know Jesus, you think you can do it yourself. And Jesus in his mercy is saying, come and I will help you. Salvation is from me, for you, through me, to you. And apart from me, you can do nothing. And there are people who reject that because they think they can be their own gods. David says, be wise. But the issue isn't just salvation. I touched on this early, earlier on. The issue isn't just salvation because I think everybody wants to get to heaven. Everyone believes they're going to go to heaven. And if I had just said, okay, he has a free pass to heaven, go and live how you want to live, most people would take that. But that's not what Jesus is offering. Jesus is offering salvation. But you need to accept his lordship. So the world has an issue with the lordship of Jesus and his rule and his reign. People have an issue with authority. The authority that comes with the lordship of Jesus. The Lord's anointed king, he will reign forever and by willing submission now or by forced submission then, like I said, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord when he comes again. Church, Jesus does not take second place to anyone. He doesn't take second place with anyone. He doesn't share authority with a man. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Therefore, the appropriate response is that you kiss the Son. Right? This is a metaphor. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's language that should paint this picture in our head of when you walk into the throne room of a monarch, you, you go down onto your knee and they extend their hand and there's normally like a signet ring that resembles their authority that you kiss as a sign of reverence and respect. The response to the warning is, kiss the son, lest he be angry. We have this idea of Jesus sitting in heaven saying, I'll come if you want to come, it's okay if you don't. In Ezekiel we get the picture of God's heart that no one perish and he's crying out, why, why will you die, why will you die? This is the way. Inherit eternal life. If you're sitting here in this place and you're iffy with Jesus, or if you have totally rejected him, Christ's call to you today is a gracious, merciful one, because he's a gracious, merciful God. He is a lamb who's been slaughtered and his body broken and blood shed, pays the price for you to be redeemed from your sin and to inherit eternal life. He is Savior and Lord. And as you experience him, so you'll experience greater and greater freedom and inherit eternal life. But we need to serve with fear and rejoice with trembling because if you reject Jesus, 
then what's left for you is hell. That's what the scriptures teach. And the urgency of submitting to Jesus is reflected in that phrase in, 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 in verse 12. It says his wrath can flare up in a moment. That's not to suggest that Jesus is inapproachable, unapproachable, or that somehow we have to be scared that on one, one day he's going to be happy and the other day he's going to be upset or there's a short temper or he's in a bad mood all the time. The, the, this, this highlights the significance of the little time we have before he returns. His, 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 his anger, his wrath can flare up in a moment. In other words, in a moment, Jesus can come back. And when he came the first time, he came with grace and mercy to save. When he comes the second time, he's coming with wrath to judge. And the end times that have been predicted in the Bible are lining up more and more and more and more. I'm not one of those who's going to say, oh, he's coming on Heritage Day. It's because God's word says we don't know. No one knows. Not even the son knows when the father's going to send to come back again. But time is running out. There's not an indefinite amount of time. The dominoes are falling. And there's going to come a time when Jesus comes back again. If you don't submit to Jesus before you die, you will face his wrath and his judgment. But for those of us who know him, the psalm ends with this beautiful promise. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Blessed are we can rest peaceful. Peacefully, we can rest knowing that we have a sovereign God enthroned in heaven. This guy named Derek Kinder, he writes, he says, There is no refuge from God. There is only refuge in God. Right? There's no refuge from God. There is only refuge in Him. And the only way that we can watch the news of this troubled world and then still sleep at night is if we've taken refuge in our sovereign God. The only way that you can rest in not knowing that your sins are forgiven is if you confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and your life is orientated around being obedient to him. You love the word. You spend time in prayer because you have a relationship with the king. And you're being salt in life, making sure that the heart of God to see those people who aren't saved redeemed is what your life is all about. Church, we learn a lot from Jesus and about who we are through this psalm. I pray that we continue to learn more, but that we'll be more orientated around a balanced understanding and perspective of Jesus than we have been, so we can rejoice with trembling and serve with fear. I think we'll be a lot more effective as his people if we hold those two ideas of who God really is in balance. Let's pray together. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Father, I want to thank you for your word. God, I want to thank you that your word is truth, that it is life, and that you've given it to us, Lord, for our edification and building up and encouragement. And Lord, I pray that this morning, that those that are in this place who don't know you would be led by the Spirit, Lord, to humble themselves and to confess this and then to accept you as their Lord and Savior. Jesus, may they know you as a good father. May they know you as the lamb who was slain for their sin. May they know you as the one who redeems and heals. God Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, as your people who know you and have given our lives to you, Lord, I pray that we'd be encouraged and that we'd rest in, in many ways, the ferocity of who you are, your warrior likeness, Lord. You're in control. You have things covered. You are sovereign and your plans and purposes will prevail. Lord, help us to continue to be part of that business and that job, to build the church, because you've promised that the gates of hell will not prevail. Now, strengthen us from our, our core, Lord. Strengthen us from the inside out, and may we really be spirit-led people. 
In Jesus' name, amen.